Most people do not like conflict. I don't like conflict. Some people are better at handling it, but most don't actually enjoy it. Well, let me clarify. Most people don't like being a participant in conflict, but being a spectator, man, that's a different thing. Some enjoy watching it, even later talking about it. Consider, for example, Jerry Springer. I've never watched a single episode. In fact, I would not encourage that. But while flipping through channels, I've come across those kinds of shows with the, with the captions at the bottom announcing the topic, which kind of clues you in as to why they're throwing fists or chairs on stage and why some people are actually being restrained, which I find interesting. interesting. Why restrain them? That's why people are tuning in to watch a good fight. Now, most of us as followers of Christ know that we are called to a different standard. Uh, Fighting, conflict, disunity is not something to be enjoyed or, now listen, or, or, or even observed as uninvolved bystanders. We're not supposed to be uninvolved bystanders when it comes to conflict. Conflict is to be dealt with, confronted. For example, Jesus taught us how to deal with the sin that oftentimes brings conflict in Matthew chapter 18. Let's take a few minutes uh, to look at that this morning. It's interesting, to, it's interesting to note that this is only the second of two times in all of the Gospels that the word church is mentioned. The first time is in Matthew 16, two chapters before, where Jesus said, I will build my church and the very gates of hell will not overcome it. Then two chapters later, chapter 18, he he tells us about how to deal with sin in the church. In other words, he says, I'm going to build my church and opposition from outside the church, the, the very gates of hell will not overcome it and conflict from within won't destroy it either. And so this is how you deal with sin in the camp. Matthew 18, verse 15 says this. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, most of you are familiar with this passage. It's the so-called church discipline passage. That is how to kick people out of the church. Actually, it's the opposite. It's how to go after a brother or sister who has sinned in order to keep them in the church. You see, instead of sitting back, observing, doing nothing, enjoying the resulting conflict, we are supposed to step into the messiness of one another's lives and pursue righteousness. I'm going to say that very, very clearly. The purpose of every form of church discipline, no matter what step in the process, is for the sake of the gospel 
and for the good of the other person. That's why we don't sit idly by. The purity of the church, the good of the other person, should be the primary reasons for every corrective measure. Now notice, Jesus says, if he listens, you have one your brother. That word one is an interesting word. It's often used of winning um, or finding a treasure, like I won the lottery. In other words, the erring brother uh, or sister should be seen as a prize to be won, a treasure to be found. And this puts a whole new twist on Matthew 18. He is communicating, Jesus is communicating that brothers and sisters are treasures, and Jesus wants them one, they're valuable, he wants them found, that son, the daughter, the friend, the fellow student, the brother, the sister who has fallen into sin, Jesus says, I want them back, go after them. That's the point of the passage. It is not the church discipline passage, you see. It's actually the church restoration passage. This is how we care for wandering sheep. And everyone in this room has wandered at one point or another, and someone who loved you came after you. That is, if they loved you. Now, those people who just kind of observed the mess, not love. Now, this is actually a four-step, not a three-step, but a four-step process. Let's review them briefly. Step one is this. If your brother or sister sins, you should go to them and show, show them their fault in private. Now, this literally means that you are to reprove him, to convince him of his fault, and then call him to repentance. You don't go to shame him, all right? You don't go to embarrass him. You don't even go to punish him. The idea is to shine light on the sin so that he can see it for what it is. Sometimes we're just blind to it. Sometimes we think nobody knows. Shine light on the sin so that he can turn from it. Now, by the way, let's just take a little aside here. To do this requires judgment on our part. Again, you're not condemning him, but you are correcting him. And we live in a world today that says Christians, and they say it very loudly, Christians, you're not supposed to judge. This is one of the problems they have with us. Christians are not supposed to judge. And this idea has infiltrated the church, and every once in a while you'll hear, you'll hear Christians say, well, it's not mine to judge. Yes, it is. While we may not be called to condemn, we are called to hold each other accountable, which requires judgment. You see, I am to observe your behaviors, you are to observe mine, and we make judgments and hold each other accountable to righteousness. It is okay, brothers and sisters, to see sin and call it sin. It is not some supposed tolerance to say, well, to each his own. And it's not loving. What happens if he doesn't listen? Step two, you don't give up. This time you take one or two witnesses with you and, and you go back. Now, I always 
thought that you took the witnesses to kind of bolster your case. You know, you, you kind of found someone who, had, had, who agreed with you and kind of had observed the behavior as well, and you go to gang up on the guy. That, that's not it. We take the witnesses for at least a couple of reasons. First, th- this is a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 19. We do it so that the facts may be confirmed in the presence of two or three witnesses. The witnesses are not necessarily people who have even observed the sin. They are people who can witness the confrontation, listen to the facts, listen to the response, and determine whether or not the charges are true, and if they are true, whether or not there's true and genuine repentance. Now, there is a second reason that you take witnesses with you. It's for the good of the other person. It might be easy if someone confronts you to ignore one person, but when he comes back with a couple more, uh, it's a little bit more difficult. You're more apt to listen and repent. But suppose he doesn't repent then. Step three, you tell it to the church. Now, that just sounds so judgmental. Why, why, why do we do that? So the, you, well, so the whole church can ignore him and have nothing to do with him to treat him as a Gentile and a tax collector. No, that's step four. Step three says, tell it to the church. Now, f- be with me here. So that the entire church can ca- gather around this erring brother or sister who is loved and say, come back. You are going the wrong way. This is the way. It's kind of about what we talked about last week. We're on this path together. Some are in front, some are behind. And as we're observing, we notice that some have wandered off the path, and we go to get them. And sometimes it may take the whole community to go get them, to bring them back. We love you. This is the right way. Let us help you figure out how you can make this right. Can you imagine the, 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 the positive pressure that could be exerted if we truly loved one another like this. So judgmental. What if he doesn't come back? Verse, seven, verse 17 is step four. You let him go. You let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector, meaning what that means is, If someone's a Gentile or a tax collector, you treat him as one outside the covenant community because that's the way he's acting. You treat him as if he's not saved. All of your associations with him are redemptive. There are times that we let them go. They made a choice. We turned them out, excommunicate him if you like that word, but please note that the goal of the action is to restore the brother or the sister. Ultimately, if he refuses to listen, we do treat him as a Gentile tax collector, meaning we treat them as an unbeliever. He's continuing to live in sin, so our relationship with him becomes redemptive. We treat him as a believer. Every opportunity we have, we share the gospel. Well, I know that. I know the gospel. Well, you're not acting like it. Now, it is also true that the purity of the church is at stake. You see, if he refuses to listen, there may be a time that we expel, uh, that we excommunicate, that we turn him out. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, it is actually reported that there is 
immorality among you, and, and immorality of such a kind as does not even exist among sinners, Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You've become arrogant and have not mourned. Instead, so that the one who has done this deed would be removed, there it is, expelled from your midst. I, on my part, though absent in body, present in spirit, I've already judged. <gasps> Paul was judging. You bet. I've judged him who has committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit with the power of the Lord Jesus, I have decided, and this is what you need to decide, this is the implication, that you deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. In other words, you turn him over for physical destruction. You get him out of the care and protection of the covenant community to destroy his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. In other words, you don't just let the sinner... Enjoy the privileges and the protection of the covenant community. You turn them out. Your boasting's not good. You see, the church in Corinth, they were actually proud of their tolerance. Does that sound familiar? They winked at this sin. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? You should have judged him. You should have taken him through the Matthew 18 process. You haven't. You are proud of your supposed tolerance. He goes on with some strong words in verse 9. Listen, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. Don't hang out with them like everything is okay. It's not. Now, I didn't mean the immoral people of the world, you know, covetous and swindlers, idolaters. And then you'd have to go out of the world. And that would be the opposite of what Jesus prayed for us and John chapter 17. And my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them. Listen, unbelievers are going to act like unbelievers. I actually wrote you not to associate with any so-called brother, sister, if he is an immoral person, covetous, idolater, reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Hey, everything's okay. No, it's not. What am I to do with judging outsiders? Meaning, listen, when unbelievers act like unbelievers, it should not shock us. They're simply acting according to their fallen nature. We don't have to judge them. They're already judged. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't call sin sin outside. Well, of course we do. We don't have to judge them. They're already judged. But notice, do you not judge those who are within the church? (gasps) We are supposed to judge one another? Yeah. Those who are outside, God's judges. This guy who's inside, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. The point is, continued, habitual, unrepented sin must not go unchecked in the body of Christ. It must be graciously and lovingly confronted, exposed, and if necessary, excluded. But even then, the goal is restoration. I've turned him over to Satan so that his body may be destroyed, that his spirit may be saved. Mutual accountability is our responsibility. It is not the loving thing to ignore sin. 
Paul speaks of holding one another accountable and restoring one another in Galatians chapter 6. It's actually all over the New Testament, but Galatians 6.1 says this. Brothers, sisters, even if anyone is caught in trespass, you who are spiritual, who are the spiritual, the ones you just talked about in chapter 5, those who are filled with the Spirit and demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit, all right? You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you will not be tempted. Would you please notice that the main verb of that sentence is not to confront, although it includes that, the main action, the main responsibility, the primary verb of the sentence is to restore. This is the ultimate purpose of judgment and corresponding confrontation, to restore. Now, let me tell you what we don't do, which we often do do, which is why we shy away from biblical accountability. It is why we as Christians are often seen as harsh and critical and intolerant. Sometimes, sometimes we ignore sin. We see it in others' lives and think, ah, bless their heart, whatever that means. That's terrible. And, And we ignore it. Pretend it's not there, none of our business, not mine to judge. Might even enjoy it a little bit. And the person is left broken. Does that, and the person is left broken. Does that sound like the loving thing to do? Think about it. Sometimes we never get past the point of diagnosis. We see the brokenness, we make a judgment. Wow, that's a. That's a broken bone, sure enough. Will you look at that? That's got to hurt. That's got to cause some pain to, to him and his family. And we allow the person to continue in the pain of sin, and we do nothing. It is not loving to ignore sin. Which leads to the next thing we often do that we should not do. We often talk to other diagnosticians about it. Will you look at that? Sure seems wrong to me. What do you think? Have you heard about John? You heard about Sally? Can you believe that? And then we, you know, sugarcoat it with a fake veneer of spirituality. We ought to pray for them. We ought to pray. Nothing wrong with praying for people. But more than that, we need to do something about their being in sin. We talk to everybody else about someone's sin besides the person. To talk to other people, gaining perspective, comparing diagnoses under the guise of prayerful consideration has another name. We call that gossip. If you are not willing to talk to a person about their sin, you have no business talking to anybody else. Still another way we often mistreat those in sin among us is to judge them, not for the purpose of restoration, but for the purpose of condemnation. We are actually pretty good at that. We treat sinners harshly, as if we're not sinners. We treat them as outcasts. We think serves them right, they got what they had coming. as if we don't deserve something else. We've heard it, you've heard it said this way before, Christians often shoot their own wounded. 
someone falls on the battlefield and we turn pow. Instead of pouring on the healing salve of loving and gracious confrontation leading to repentance and restoration, we grab hold of their brokenness and we twist it. Is it any wonder that we are sometimes seen as harsh, critical, intolerant, judgmental? Instead, as one pastor wrote, when Christians are caught in sin, they do not need isolation or amputation. They need restoration. The proper thing to do is to help them confess their sins and find forgiveness in Christ and then welcome them back into the fellowship of the church. That's what we're supposed to do. But we don't just welcome them back. We help them find repentance and forgiveness. Please notice how this restoration is to take place in Galatians. Paul says, we restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, which is why it requires the spiritual. It's not talking about some spiritual elite. It's talking about those, again, Galatians 5, who are filled with the Spirit, manifesting the fruit of the Spirit, one of which, by the way, is gentleness. I would suggest that if we approached each other with gentleness, there would be a lot less accusation that we are judgmental, harsh, critical, and intolerant. Now, even as I say that, the very fact that we name sin and oppose sinful behavior, for many, will make us judgmental, okay. But we must still oppose sin graciously, gently, certainly in our own ranks. We must not shoot our own wounded. We must see the brokenness and gently, carefully bind it, pour on the salve of healing, and restore the person to where they were before they fell. Consider a couple of other passages that Paul wrote concerning erring brothers and sisters. Second Corinthians chapter 2 is probably not the same one from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He speaks of restoring a brother who had apparently been disciplined but had now repented. Paul says, sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority so that on the contrary you should rather forgive and Comfort him, otherwise such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, reaffirm your love for him. Paul says, all right, you discipline him. He's repented, now comfort him and love him. Care for him. Show compassion. Be gentle. Sometimes people walk away from the church because they've fallen into sin and we've done a good job confronting it. We've not done a good job forgiving it. There are, I would suggest, millions of people in our own country who left the church because of, I'm not saying it's right, but they left the church because of Christians. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person. Don't associate with him. If he's going to be disobedient, don't associate with him so, so that he will be put to shame. But, but, but don't regard him as an enemy. He's not an enemy. Admonish him as a brother. Let me say it again. The most loving thing that we can do is to confront wrong. Leaving people in their sin is not loving. We must make every effort to restore them gently. Now, that is a very long introduction to our text in Philippians this morning. You can relax. I've preached most of the message. I do, however, want to remind us that gracious confrontation is one of the most loving and biblical things that we can do. So you can turn to Philippians chapter 4 now. You see, Paul 
loves this church in Philippi. It's going to jump off the page in verse 1. But when Epaphroditus came bringing the gift, he reported that there was a problem in Philippi. Listen, Paul, there's some division. There's some disunity in the church. We know this because of a number of verses that we've already looked at. Remember the theme verse? Chapter 1, verse 27 says this, um, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come see you, remain absent, I will hear of you. This is what I want to hear, that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel because I hear you're not doing that. Chapter 2, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Don't do anything from selfishness or, or, or empty conceit. With humility of mind, regard each other as more important than yourselves. Don't merely look out for your own interests. Look out for the interests of those around you. Later in chapter 2, he says, do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you could prove that you are who you say you are. Brings us to our text, chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. Say this. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I, I urge, Yodia, and I urge Suntuke to, to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also, and, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. In these three short verses, Paul finally addresses who many consider to be the problem, the leaders of this division, these factions in the church. They appear to be leaders, at least they're well known, so he brings them before the church. He holds them accountable in front of the church to stop the division and to pursue this unity that he's been talking about. Let's just make our way quickly through these verses. Verse 1, again, his love for the church jumps off the page. Now listen, he's getting ready to name a couple of people. But before he does that, he wants everybody to understand, I want you to know how much I love you. And this ought to communicate something to us about the way that we confront people. The very first thing we should do is help them to understand, I want you to know how much I love you. And the reason that I'm doing this, the reason that I'm going to say these things to you is because I love you. And if you can't say I love you, then keep your mouth shut. This, his love is what prompts the letter. His love is what prompts this action. His action wasn't punitive. He's not condemning. He's, he loves them deeply, and he's calling them to righteousness. See, that's what you do when you really, truly love people. You call them to righteousness. Look at the terms of endearment he uses. Literally, he says, therefore, my beloved and longed for brothers and sisters, my joy and crown. Then he ends the verse by, by, by calling beloved again. You guys are so deeply loved, I said twice. These are, you are my, there's the use of the personal pronoun, my brothers and sisters, pointing to the family relationship that they share. He longs for them. The only place in the New Testament that this particular word is used. He's actually homesick for them. They are his joy and his crown. He, he, he uses a similar phrase, a similar sentence to the Thessalonians, uh, where he says, for who is our hope or joy, or crown of exaltation. Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus that is coming? 
Notice the future ring to that, to that idea. At the coming of Jesus, you're going to be my joy and my crown. When Jesus comes back, I, I'm going to be able to point to you and say, look, these people believe they're my crown. But Paul uses in our verse, in our text, the present tense. You are right now my joy and my crown. I find that interesting. In the midst of prison, I am imprisoned for the sake of the gospel, for sharing the good news about Christ. But I want you to know something. Every time I think of you, you bring me joy. You are my joy. You are proof. You are the crown of my kingdom work. He calls them then to stand firm in the Lord. We've heard this over and over. Stand firm together in the Lord. And I want to suggest that that is the key to unity in the church. That is the key to battle conflict. Standing firm in the Lord. After all he's talked about in chapter 3, which is why he begins chapter 4 with the word therefore. In light of the fact that we are focused on one thing together. If we're focused on other things, disunity but if we are focused on Christ and his gospel and the fact that our Lord is coming back, we're keeping our eyes fixed, we're citizens of another place, and, and he is going to come back and get us our Lord and Savior, as we focus on that, we will stand firm together. We can stand firm together in the Lord. It's when we get our eyes off Christ and on ourselves that we begin stumbling and fighting. In fact, let me say it this way. You show me a divided church, and I will show you a selfish church. You show me a fighting church, and I will show you one that does not have its eyes fixed on Christ. In fact, you know that there are churches out there who think it's just them against the world to include the rest of Christians, and I will show you. I know they think that they're right, but I want to tell you that they have their eyes fixed on themselves. So, in verse 2, Paul does something we would never do. I mean, it lacks decorum. I mean, it's not very gracious. Sounds kind of judgmental. It's what we think. He actually calls two people out by name. Now, I want to remind you that they did not get this letter by email, okay? Uh, they, they didn't even get it in their own individual copy, uh, photograph, photocopied copies, all right? The very first time they heard this letter, it was read publicly in the church. And you can see these two women sinking down in the pew. But Paul is simply following Jesus' instruction of Matthew 18 and his own instruction of 1 Corinthians 5 and Galatians 6 that he'd already written. He does it gently, lovingly. I want you to know that I love you. But love deals with sin. And he, he urges two women by name, Yodia and Suntuke. We do not know who these women were. It's likely, given the rest of the letter, it's called to unity that these women were leaders in the church and were now at odds with each other. So Paul urges them. It's an interesting word. It's a very warm, tender, affectionate word. I plead with you. I encourage you to live in harmony in the Lord. I don't know why it's translated that way because it's exactly the same words that appear in chapter 2, verse 2. I want you to um, be of the same mind with one another. He is calling them to be of the same mind and to put aside their petty differences. Now listen to me. I said the word petty on purpose because if there was a serious sin issue here, he would have called them out like he did that guy in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. These 
This community was likely divided over something petty, and the church had divided themselves behind these women and stood opposed to each other. And Paul is really writing, going, really? Verse 3, we find that at one point these women were fellow workers with Paul. Standing, the, word, the, the wording there speaks of standing side by side with him in the cause of the gospel. They weren't f- standing face to face against each other or with their backs at each other. They, were, they shared in his struggle, likely speaking of the opposition that they had faced in Philippi. You were, you were with me in the fight. We don't know what happened in the interim, but somehow they got off track. And Paul now is saying, come back, come back. Remember, he says, remember when we were fighting a common foe? Remember when we were standing side by side in the defense of the gospel? We were not fighting each other. And he names these two women. He also mentions a guy named Clement. Don't know anything about him. Must have been a, we just know he was a fellow worker with Paul. and must have had a special relationship for Paul to single him out. But, but, but that's not all. He says, along with all those whose names are in the book of life. That comes out of left field. Why does Paul throw that in? I mean, the book of life, we, we, we know up here uh, in, in, in Jewish literature and, and prominently in the book of Revelation. Seems to point to those who have been truly redeemed They're the saved, their names are written in the book of life as followers of Christ, and therefore they have gained, not earned, but gained eternal salvation, and the books are going to be opened, the names are going to be read, right? But why does Paul mention that here? I think Paul is reminding them who they are. Do you remember that you are redeemed followers of Christ? And he reminds them where they're going. Don't you remember that we're citizens of another place and Jesus is on his way back? Don't be distracted by these petty, selfish things. We we, we are headed for something much greater. Don't don't you know that your names are in the family book? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Finally, notice the beginning of verse 3. He says, indeed true companion, not companions, that's singular, companion. I ask you, the pronoun is singular, to help these women. And that word help is an interesting word. It speaks of literally pulling them back together. He said, listen, I I want you to do whatever is necessary. You lay hands on these women, grab them by the nap of the neck, and make them stand side by side again. That big question is, who is this true companion? Lots of guesses through the centuries, lots You read for pages, is it Lydia, the first convert of Philippi in whose house the the church met, maybe? Is it Luke? Most think that it was Luke. Paul had left him behind in Philippi, and he seems to be one of Luke's traveling companions, genuine companion. Was he a pastor, an elder? I don't know. Is he speaking of the whole church? Listen, are we at that point? Listen, whole church. We need to hold these ladies accountable, true companion. In the end, we don't know. They did. That's what matters. He's calling for the church to make this thing right. We must be willing to do this. We must be willing. Here's the point as we close. Unity in the church, in the Lord, for the cause of Christ and His gospel is of utmost importance. And we must do whatever is necessary, whatever is necessary to maintain unity. 
If we see people at odds, we don't just sit by and watch and go, isn't that terrible? We must step in. We might even need to confront someone. We might need to grab them by the nap of the neck and have them stand side by side. Here's the point. We cannot do nothing. Because the church of Jesus Christ and his gospel are at stake. Let's stand for prayer. Father, I, I, I just kind of have this feeling that this is one of those passages and this is one of those topics as we kind of looked at Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5 that we all kind of nod in agreement and go, yeah, and then we don't do. Would you help us to be so loving and so filled with the spirit of love and joy and peace and, and gentleness that we would step into the messiness of one another's lives and say, You're, you, 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 you veered off the path. Come back. Let's, let's walk it together. I don't want us to be harsh. I don't want us to be a bunch of spiritual policemen running around. Father, I want us to be true to your word. In Christ's name, amen.